0: When did Oxford get psychology and vice versa? Well, the first official time was in 1898 with the appointment of the first wild professor, G.F. Stout. Uh, now, <clears throat> if you try to read Stout before anything he wrote before he came to Oxford, it's clear that that this was a move by the philosophers to get psychology in through the back door. Uh, Stout on Herbert, Johannes Herbert in Germany, is almost unintelligible. However, when he came to Oxford, he actually wrote a book called Manual of Psychology. And in it, it's full of extremely interesting work on afterimages, color vision. He obviously was a very devoted scholar and devoted to the to the subject. Whether <clears throat> Henry Wilde himself would have approved is is another question. Henry Wilde was the one who established the readership, and the university accepted it. Notwithstanding the conditions that he laid down, there were two conditions, the reader shall from time to time lecture on the illusions and delusions which are incident to the human mind. He shall also lecture as far as may be practicable on the psychology of the lower races of mankind, lower races of mankind, as illustrated by the various fetish objects in the Anthropological Museum of the University and other universities. Now, one of the reasons that Wobb might have been unhappy about Stout's uh, appointment, uh, and he became successively unhappy about other appointments as well, was that Cambridge had established an appointment, a lectureship in psychology. Wilde had had explicitly said no experimental work should go on in psychology. None. And he was very insistent that that be maintained. Now, the, the job at Cambridge, the lectureship, was in experimental psychology and physiology of the senses. And they appointed WHR Rivers to that post. Simultaneously, he held an appointment at UCL in and and, and Oxford. Um, but you can see that Wilde might have uh, actually considered Cambridge Experimental Psychology as part of the lower races of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rivers became eminent as a neurologist. He was a physician, psychiatrist, psychologist, and then he went off, became an anthropologist and went to Torres Strait expedition in New Guinea. He took McDougall with him. McDougal was, then became the second wild reader. <clears throat> wild was still alive, and McDougall was an inveterate experimenter, and we have some of his equipment, some some of the uh, examples of the dotting experiment uh, of McDougall used to study fatigue and attention and so forth. He did a lot of work. He wrote several textbooks. He was probably one of the six most influential psychologists in the world at the time. Nevertheless, Wilde tried to get him sacked because he was an experimenter. And you can see the interesting correspondence between the vice chancellor and Wilde, which Karine has put in the display cabinet there um, the university didn't sack McDougall, but uh, it didn't treat McDougal all that well in other respects he had no room he had no college connection he borrowed space from physiology but put his own nameplate up on the door department of Psychophysics, I think he called it. Then he went off and did quite important work on selection during the First World War, returned to Oxford. The physiologist wouldn't give him his space back. So he left Oxford in a very disgruntled state. Uh, great loss to Oxford, if, if one might say in retrospect. Um, He wasn't very happy at Harvard either, which is where he went. And he only stayed there a year. He was unhappy with Harvard's plumbing system. (laughs) (laughs) And then he went to what in America is called Duke University, which here is called Duke University. Uh, And then he became interested in in, in parapsychology. Um, So I say he was... uh, Stout was followed by McDougall, who in turn was followed by William Brown in 1920, by which time Wilde had died the year before. Now, Brown himself was interested in clinical psychology. uh, And it turned out to have very great benefit to, to Oxford in, in an indirect way. But uh, he wrote in 1933, I think it was, Oxford is the only great university in the world which still has no laboratory in experimental psychology. Um, and that was true. Well, one of his patients was Mrs. Hugh Watts, And the year after he wrote that, Mrs. Watts sent a check to the university for 10,000 pounds. It just came as a check without any return address, an envelope from a London hotel, no legal uh, uh, ramifications, whatever, Yes, he's so envious, Nick. (laughs) I'll work on keeping up the good (laughs) truth. Well, the university was sufficiently embarrassed by this that it set up an institute of experimental psychology uh, the following year. Some years later, when the university created a second chair... Uh, we thought it right to name the chair after Mrs. Watts. The question is, how do we actually track her down? So we put an ad in the, in the Times to members of the of the Watts family, and indeed we did find some, and they were delighted. And one of them actually came to the official opening of, of the new, new building. Um, <clears throat> now, Brown was succeeded by William Stevenson, and there is some. Karine has found a quote from uh, Stevenson there with his assistant, Oliver Zangwill. Well, that's. uh, It still remained the case as Brown had written, that Oxford had no experimental psychology. Uh, it didn't have a school of psychology either. <clears throat> but there were a series of very contentious debates in congregations, which eventually led to the establishment of PPP. That's psychology with one of the other two P's Heaven forbid if both bees could get in, one or the other. Uh, still, it was something. Uh, now, it's often said that Gilbert Ryle, who wrote a book which was influential at the time, Concept of Mind, was as a very ardent opposer of PPP. All I can say is that I got to know Rao reasonably well when I joined, when I came to Oxford. And he was an enthusiastic supporter of psychology. And he used to come uh, to the institute as it was to attend seminars and uh, practical classes and so forth. (coughs) Now, because of a fluke, I cannot put it any other way. I ended up in Oxford as a student in 1949. I hadn't intended to come as a student. I'd had a fellowship from my home university that took me to anywhere in the world that I wanted for one year, if they approved it. And I said, I think I'd like to go to Oxford, amongst other places. And so I wrote to the then professor, the first professor, George Humphrey, <clears throat> and said, can I have some research space in, in the institute? And he met me, and he, he said, well, I have to find out more about you, of course. He came back with a broad grin on his face a few weeks later when he called me to meet him. He said, I sent a cable to Wolfgang Koehler, who was one of my teachers at Swarthmore. Kohler has replied, Weisskrantz is okay. <laughs> so, 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 um, it still remained the case, even after PPP, and now I'm quoting Brown again, in any university of the world except Oxford, psychology may be taken as a separate subject and examinations are set in that subject. Well, I came to Oxford in 1967. I had asked for any background on this subject. The registrar sent me a mountain of material. that had been debated for some years in the sub-faculty. So we pursued it. And it was a tough job. We had 13 committees, one for each paper and a coordinating committee. Uh, it took a few years. Several people were very active in establishing what we hoped would become a single school. Um, Michael Treisman, Jeffrey Gray was especially uh, important, and Michael Argyle. <clears throat> And Treisman, uh, several people, and then came the crunch time. The general board said, "If the philosophers approve it, we can go ahead." So we then had to meet the philosophers. Um, and David McFarland and I agreed to go talk to the philosophy subfaculty to persuade them that this was not a threat to them. <coughs> PPP would still continue. Fortunately, I was late to the meeting, <clears throat> and so was Michael Dummett, mm-hmm. and we met each other outside the sub-faculty board, and we had a good chat before we went in, he said, I'm with you. <laughs> and Michael Dummett was a very influential philosopher at the time, it was perhaps a happy in- coincidence. Uh, so finally in 1969 a single honor school was established and it was inaugurated in 1970. Now the old institute was uh, <coughs> had been an old school building on Banbury Road. The first professor, George Humphrey, had the salubrious accommodation of an outside lavatory for his office. There was a hut at the back which had six small rooms, of which I was given one by George Humphrey. Oliver Zangle had another, so forth and so on. Bernard Babington Smith had another. The workshop had one and we were given very, very severe instructions. The workshop must goes down and all noise must cease on Thursday afternoons because that's when Bernard Babington Smith does his tutorials. And that was rigidly enforced uh, and rigorously enforced. Uh, There was a single room for teaching, practical classes, and another single room, uh, which was the office, and it had the bust of McDougall, which we still have in the new building. Um, and the then Wild professor, Wild reader, uh, Brian Farrell, also had a room. And the wild reader has always been connected with psychology. It's always been, as it were, a gift from Lidham to to us. Anyway, in the mid-1950s, there was a move to another building, one South Parks Road, a nice large Victorian building uh, with some huts out at the back and so forth and so on. Uh this was, this was before the age of, should we say, enthusiastic health and safety. Because I was stationed on the top floor. The only way you could reach my office was through a narrow staircase. And I started to wonder, what would happen if there were a fire? And next door to me was Judith Shinger who, the secretary, she always came in with three dogs. Uh, So I got in touch with her surveyor. Is there some way in which we can arrange a fire escape? And to my delight, they came. They attached a rope from my window, (laughs) which I climbed down. And I wondered about Judith and her three dogs (laughs) escaping that way. When I came in 1967 uh, as a professor, I went, of course, to that building, as I've just said, but the plans for the new building were already well-established. The foundations had been dug and so forth and so on. Uh, And we finally moved into the new building in 1971. But... What I remember richly about that whole period, even before I became professor, the number of really outstanding visitors we had to the department. We had Chomsky, Skinner, Lucas Teuber, who used to spend lots of time here, George Mandor, Carl Prebrum, Mort Michigan, Solomon Ash, social psychologist, came very often. Uh, he used to spend his summers in Oxford, in fact. The two Gibsons, Jimmy and Eleanor, both were here. It seemed to be a favorite place for people to retire into. J.Z. Young wrote to us and said, Could he retire into our department? We were delighted. Tinbergen also asked if he could come. David Whittridge asked if he could come. And we accepted all of these uh, and many others. Plus, Donald Broadbent, Margaret Broadbent, Bert Rosner, Reuben Conrad. Donald had been director of the APU in Cambridge. He not only came with Margaret, he also brought Conrad, who was his deputy. Uh, Susanna Miller was here for many years; still is. Kathy Parks, Jane Mellenby. Uh, Olivera, Petrovich, and Dalker, and so forth and so on. First Watts professor, Jerry Bruner, came, and he opened up the department to developmental child interest. And Gordon Courage, who was appointed as a lecturer, provided a bridge to clinical studies. I just want to say one other thing about how things have changed out of all recognition uh, in the general background when I and my colleagues were here from 67 for the next 20, 30 years um, the NRC was extremely proactive you wouldn't believe just how proactive they were from current uh, behavior. <laughs> they, when we applied for a research grant, they said, oh, well, there's several people working in your department. Let's have a research group. So we did. They had a site visit, as they had for site visits. They wrote to the university and said, we'd like to take over Wisecrans for two years. They hadn't told me about this. The university refused in the first instance. They said, we never allow a professor to leave. But in fact, they did eventually agree, and people took it in turns. Much more important, the MRC established interdisciplinary research groups, not only for psychology, but for anatomy, physiology, different people working together in what you might call neuroscience interest. <clears throat> we applied, and we got one. Uh, we had to discuss it with heads of physiology, pharmacology, anatomy, neurology, hmm. so forth. We, we got one in 1950, 2.1 million pounds for over seven years, and Alan Cowley chaired that. And then later, the McDonald Foundation became interested in very similar things. Now, the MRC today just, you could not imagine them doing anything like that. And it was very important for the history of psychology that they had that particular attitude. Now, I just want to finish on uh, what I think might be a morality tale. Um, When I was uh, interested. When I had considered coming to Oxford I wasn't sure whether I wanted to come as professor. Uh, Magdalen offered hospitality to me. He said, well, do come over. We'll, you use the guest room. We will show, well, you, you can have a look around get some sense of what it's like. and I'm, I'm <clears throat> You can see what college it is you'll be attached to. And so I accepted. The vice president showed me around, who was Brian Lloyd, in fact, a physiologist. And he then pointed out to me as he showed me the various sites in Mordland this is where breakfast takes place, it was in the senior common room. So <clears throat> I duly remembered that, and I had the night in the guest room, and I came. <clears throat> the following morning to breakfast and I saw around the circular table in the center of the room, which is still there I think, a wall of newspapers. Well I sat down, I didn't see anybody, I took my plate. Put cereal in it and I was about to put what I thought was sugar into my cereal and from behind the newspaper a voice said, that's salt you know <laughs> <laughs> now that's a morality tale because salt is spicy especially if there's an open wound it's nutritious but not sweet <laughs> uh, but It also describes those of your colleagues who are salt of the earth, of which there are many. And I think, and it also means that you're being observed more or less continuously. And I think that's the story of Oxford from 1898. I think that's the salt that's been there right from the beginning, right? Thanks.
1: Thank you, Larry. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of things I didn't know in that. Um, and speaking of the salt of the earth and, uh, and Modlin, I don't know whether Magdalen bargains for it, but um, pretty soon I think there'll be four holders of the chair of psychology kicking around Magdalen College. And I, I hope they don't see that as, as three too many. Um, I think you can see some three phases in the history of the department or oh, the history of psychology in Oxford, I should say. The first is this long struggle for legitimacy, which, uh, which Larry has told you quite a lot about. Um, and you can see the letter there from Wilde writing grumpily from the Edge, doesn't give any other address, Wilde the Edge, saying how <coughs> MacDougall was not a proper holder of the chair that he'd endowed because psychology was only a lower branch of mental philosophy. Um, that Struggle went on a long time. Uh, I think the last echoes of it were probably still going on when, when Larry arrived. But the second, that was the second phase, which was the development of the department, the s- astonishing development of the department, I think, from the, from the outside laboratory on the Banbury Road to the, uh, to, the, to the building on the corner, and not just, obviously, the building, but the range of activities that, get, that have gone on in it, the, um, the collection of outstanding scientists who've worked there... Uh, and Larry's been rather modest in his description of that phase, which clearly must have been very much his, his doing. Um, it, I agree, it must have been nicer to do that in a phase when the expansion of the universities was a, a, a sort of public, uh, public cliche and uh, Robin's report was going on everyone thought there should be more students better, uh, better, better, better uh, resourced and so on and so on. Uh, I, I regret that if now... JJ Gibson and Chomsky and Skidder all learned up and said, can they spend a, a few months in the department? Uh, my administration would say, uh, well, we pay X pounds per square meter to the university, you know. <laughs> so um, there, there were, there were, there were happy, what were in some respect happier times. Nonetheless, Larry's must have had considerable will and energy and vision in essentially creating the department as it, as it now is. And so the third phase is, I guess, consolidating those gains taking new opportunities as they come, but within a framework, which I think was very much laid down in the the 70s, 80s and 90s. So what was laid down was first that psychology in Oxford was a a broad department. Uh, It had preeminent strengths in in brain and behaviour and in cognitive psychology, clearly, but it was always part of the mission that it wasn't... uh, what sometimes I think they unfortunately called hard science psychology in that respect. Uh, it had work of international quality in, in development ever since the uh, appointment of Brunner to the Watts Chair uh, and in social psychology for a long time, uh, and also in, in the area of abnormal psychology, psychological disorders. So that's a field which I think has waxed and waned and gone through twists and turns because of the complexities of the relationship involved with, with other agencies, other departments. So that's been a rather uneven trajectory, but as we'll, I hope we'll hear shortly, um, that that aspect is definitely going to be airborne. Um, so part of, part of that phase was the uh, establishment of the uh, final honours school in experimental psychology that uh, Larry's alluded to, supplementing PPP and meaning that psychology was a, a subject you could take on its own as a, as a sort of core discipline. Um, John Hall um, sent me an email in which he discovered, it, rather than probably, in the, um, in the waiting room of a restaurant in Wareham, a copy of the Handbook to the University of Oxford in 1951 um, that had an uh, explanation of what, of, what, of what psychology or what PPP was about. And it said, the Honours PPP School is a rigorous, some have said rather severe, training in psychology. Uh, well, I hope we're still rigorous. I'm not sure whether it's to our credit if we're severe. Uh, It also said a good psychologist must be, in the broadest sense, a humanist. And at the same time, he, significant pronoun, he must have a first-hand knowledge of the experimental and statistical methods on which modern psychology is built. And also said that Oxford was comparatively late in giving full recognition to the study of psychology, partly perhaps because of the feeling that students might be attracted to it for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Um, Well, we're attracting... Excellent students. I'm not sure what reasons they're coming from, but I hope they go out with the right reasons, whatever they came in with. Um, And I think from the current perspective, rather than saying, well, I'm not sure what it means to be in the broad sense a humanist, but I'd like to think of psychology as a preeminently a liberal science education. That is, it takes people, it gives them a scientific perspective, it gives them a a scientific perspective on human beings, uh, and thereby they're educated to have a a critical, a systematic and a quantitative approach to human problems, as well as the, psychology, the practice of psychology in a more specific sense. So I hope that what we're doing is generating practicing psychologists, researchers and professionals of high order, but also training a lot of people to go out there and apply across a very wide range of activities uh, what they've learned about how human beings can be Understood systematically, how they can be investigated, how behavior is a proper subject for empirical critical uh, analysis. I also hope that what we bring to, uh, to students now, and I think have throughout the history of psychology in Oxford, is the idea that this is an outward looking discipline. There are some places where people are very concerned that psychology should be done by psychologists, and that, for instance, somebody who hasn't done a first degree in psychology might not be a proper person to teach in the department or might not be a proper person to take on as a graduate student or whatever. Um, I feel very strongly opposed to that view. I think psychology has, has flourished because it's, uh, of its contacts, its community, its outward looking with a whole range of uh, related disciplines, both in the biological and neuroscience end, in social sciences, in formal understanding of computation and, and, and so on. And I think it would be... A, a sad day if we didn't recognize those links and I think in Oxford right now we're profiting from them very well. So we're attempting to sustain the vision of the subject, the vision of the department, the vision of education which, which Larry started by laying down in the, um, in, 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 the, in the late 60s and early 70s. But obviously things change, we don't, can't simply free, free, freeze what we do in, a, in the past era. and so. I want to say a few words about what's happened, as it were, on on my watch in the last 10 years. Uh, uh, (coughs) How how, has psychology changed? How has it taken forward um, its its mission? Well, two things actually... When I arrived in 2001, two things were already happening that I had had no input into, but hadn't yet actually fully taken place. One was that there was a quite radical restructuring of the final honours school, uh, involving a division into a Part 1 a second year exam and a Part Two, third year exam, uh, which allowed ensured ensure that there was a core coverage of all the main areas of psychology, but then a, an opportunity, I think almost a uniquely good opportunity, for students to really pursue particular interests and get in, in depth into particular areas uh, in the system of research projects and advanced options. In fact, we're, we're right now achieving what I hope is a... Uh, a, a victory in discussions with the Graduate Studies Committee because we have a, and we've had for a few years, an MSc in psychological research, and the students on that MSc uh, complained that many of the courses they were being taught weren't actually as advanced as the ones we were giving to our undergraduates. And um, we're now in the process of changing the, changing the structure of that MSC so that an enhanced version of those advanced undergraduate options can serve as part of the MSC curriculum. Uh, anyway, um, that restructuring was to, uh, in large part, the work of, of Brian Rogers, who's uh, sitting over there now as a, as a proctor, uh, who devised... a. An elegant structure, sometimes a a structure, I think, which nobody else understood but him, uh, but an elegant structure which allowed various combinations of taking three, four, or five papers in psychology if you're a PPP, doing PPP, and meeting the requirements of the British Psychological Society, and and so on. The other important thing that happened in 2001 is that this uh, university went divisional, Frankly, I have no idea how it worked before um, <laughs> uh, or how it could have worked out of the way it's supposed to have worked before, but maybe people will tell me that worked very well. Anyway, it went divisional. Somebody somewhere must have decided, had to discuss what, um, what division that psychology would go into. Uh, but that decision had been made, and it, when I arrived, it was made that psychology should be, should be part of the medical science division. And I think all experience since suggests that was absolutely the right thing to do, not least because the other division it might have joined has simply dissolved. Um, <coughs> so uh, within that division, we're to some extent a, an outlier. Uh, we don't have lots of uh, wet labs full of chromatography and uh, protein sequencing machines, unlike most other departments. We don't have a a major role in, in teaching medical students, although thanks to Jan, we have we do. Uh, contribute to their education, um, and we're relatively relatively small compared with the sort of some of the mammoth clinical research operations that take place up the hill. Uh, nonetheless, despite being in some respects a bit of an outlier, uh, we've been very much at home in the division. The officials and uh, other members of the division have been uh, very supportive of our activities, and both practically and uh, and intellectually. And we've built a a wide network of of connections with other uh, departments in the division, uh, physiology or DPAGs it now is, pharmacology, psychiatry, neurology, as well as sustaining all our links uh, with with social sciences, with linguistics, uh, and with the other philosophy, other subjects in the humanities and social sciences that are relevant to psychology. Uh, So I think the division has been quite forward-looking in, in pulling together a, 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 a strategic approach to neuroscience that uh, went beyond the departmental divisions in which we've played an important role. And two particular elements of that I'd like to, to highlight. One is that the, uh, Oxford is the home of certainly one of the two leading centres for functional brain imaging in the UK. Um, and that was a... This is, this is FIMRIB, which is housed up at Clinical Neurology. But Alan Carey in the psychology department was one of the people who was instrumental in getting it going, getting it funded, and getting it set up. And there are many members of the psychology who have very active research programs uh, using that facility. We're, we're very closely integrated with it. Uh, Matthew Rushworth, in particular, and Heidi O'Ansberg together have uh, used not only functional but structural methods of MRI to, to great effect in understanding the organization of the brain. Uh, Kate Watkins, a m- more recent recruit. Uh, also has a, a major foot in, 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 that, in, in that institution and spends a lot of time um, using, again, both functional and structural methods to understand some of the developmental issues around, uh, around language. Uh, more recently than that, uh, another facility has been set up, uh, and that's the MEG, Magnetoencephalography System, which is housed up at psychiatry. And that has some, some slightly chequered origins, which is probably not too tactful to discuss in a public meeting. Uh, but in the last year, uh, the head of psychiatry looked for somebody who could, ta- who could take it on and transform that facility into one that could pr- uh, provide state-of-the-art, uh, rigorous research in MEG, open to the, uh, to the, to the division as a whole, Kia Nobre in our department has taken on that job, uh, and from everything I hear, it's it's going very successfully, and it's both integrated with the brain imaging at Finmeadow, but also using some of the same approach analytical approaches and so on. So these are cross di- these are cross divisional neuroscience facilities, which psychology is deeply embedded in, to the benefit I think of all concerned. Um, we've also got many continuing collaborations with the psychiatry department. Uh, Quite a lot of people have gone to and fro in the course of the time I'm here. Um this is Catherine Harmer, who came to a lectureship in our department, went up to a further post there. Mark Williams holds a Wellcome Trust senior, uh, sorry, principal research fellowship jointly between the two institutions. Uh, I think that's a, a, a flourishing and healthy relationship. Uh, we've also got uh, quite a lot of involvement with work in genetics. Uh, so, another jointly uh, appointed Wellcome Principal Fellow is. is is, uh, is Jonathan Flint, who, whose other half is in the um, <coughs> in the Welcome Institute for Human, Welcome Centre for Human Genetics, uh, but genetic approaches calling on that expertise are also quite important in other, in several programs in the uh, in the department, for instance, Dorothy Bishop's work and uh, Gaia Sheriff's work on on developmental disorders. Uh, and I have to say that this, I think, ha- happy and fruitful relationship. Uh, with the medical Divi- science division, has been very much promoted by, um, by the fact that Nick Rawlins, who was a, a lecturer when I arrived and became the Watts Professor soon after, has always had a big role in the, uh, in the division and has acted as a very effective two-way interpreter. So uh, he could tell the, the, the people at the center of the division just what psychology was all about, and he could tell psychology what the medical division was all about. Uh, He's no longer played that role, but I hope he can communicate equally effectively as as, as to how fundraising can help us and possibly how we can help fundraising. Um, I think for the 10 years I've been here, I think the most satisfying aspect of of my role has been that the, the the good fortunes of demographics have meant that quite a lot of members of the academic staff uh, came up to a period of retirement. And I've actually had a hand in the appointment of no less than 11 lecturers in 10 years. Um, and they're mostly uh, youngish people. Uh, it's quite an early stage in their career, but identify as extremely promising, and I think they're all fulfilling that promise in active research, or lively uh, and committed uh, engagement with teaching. And from that point of view, uh, the department's extremely healthy, uh, and given life expectancy, assuming these people don't get seduced to flashy chairs elsewhere, uh, they can maintain its health for a good 20 years to come. Uh, The downside of that is that um, the demographics are now not a set of people approaching retirement, but a set of people in their their 30s and early 40s. And so uh, unless some miraculous source of expansion can be found, which seems kind of unlikely at the moment, uh, then I suspect that my successor is not going to have the same opportunity to, uh, uh, to develop the careers of, uh, of, of young scientists and psychology that, that, that I've had, and that's a pity. Uh, the other thing I should say is that of these uh, new lectures, we've appointed more than half are women. That's something I'm very pleased with, and it wasn't a consequence of any... Uh, <coughs> Of, of, of any explicit equal opportunities policy. It's simply that of the able young academic psychologists out there, uh, a large proportion are women, and we're very pleased to have them on board. Uh, some would point out that since 75% 75 or 80% of our undergraduates are women, that it's not really very egalitarian for about 50% of the teachers to be female, but that's, a, that's an issue for the teacher. <clears throat> the other thing I'd like to uh, comment on is that we shouldn't restrict thinking of the department as the uh, appointed university teaching staff. They're very important, but there are a lot of other people and always have been ever since, um, uh, ever since uh, Larry uh, got uh, Donald Broadbent to join the department and people like that. There have always been a lot of people in the department who are supported on external research fellowships but contribute to our activity, contribute to our prestige, contribute to the intellectual life of the department. Uh, so, for instance, in, and we're talking about people at all levels here, some of them are, uh, are junior research fellows from the colleges, some are postdoctoral fellows on, uh, on, on other people's program grants, some held their career development fellowships, some are at high professorial levels, like welcome principal fellows. Um, and I the importance of those people is indicated by the fact that in the last uh, research assessment exercise in 2008, uh, in which we had a, a very successful outcome, we submitted actually the work of 39 scientists. Only, 20, uh, 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 only 19 of those were actually people who held official university teaching or professorial posts. So more than half of, in, in that sense, more than half of the research activity is being driven by, uh, by these external people. That was actually an interesting contrast with Cambridge. Uh, I don't know why, but um, in terms of the, of the league table that came out of that RAE, the, what was called the grade point average, which makes us sound like we're coming out of the University of Minnesota or something. Uh, anyway, the, that, 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 point, that point score, uh, we, were the, we came second among UK psychology departments. Cambridge beat us by a, a, a couple of, um, couple of de- points in the second decimal place. Um, <laughs> But Cambridge's submission seemed to consist of, it was only about half the size of ours. It was, it was only just over 20 people. So, and and the, the actual academic size of the staff of the two departments is much the same size. So we are clearly attracting and using those externally supported research scholars more effectively and uh, they're very valuable to us. Uh, I think it, it does, that structure does raise a question. First of all, what are the longer-term prospects of these people? Um, they aren't all going to be able to develop into university lectureships or professorships because the jobs aren't going to be there. Some of them will continue to get support from the Wellcome Trust and so on, but others won't. Um, so there are question marks over the future, and I think it's also a question mark for Oxford. These people, not only in this department, not only in our department, in many departments, are a key part of, the, key part of what goes on in the University of Oxford, and they don't necessarily have a well-recognized place and where way they can fit into collegiate life and so on. And I think Oxford, as an institution, has got to think harder about that. Okay, well that's really about, uh, about structures and, uh, and people. Maybe I should say a little bit about what kind of uh, research uh, is currently going on in the department. First of all, the, the area that was sort of laid down in the, in the 70s by Larry and Alan Carrier and others of behavioral and cognitive neuroscience is clearly a, a primary area of strength, although there's maybe some, some shift of emphasis. So perhaps the, the work that's going on on brain function is less concerned with early sensory processing than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and we've now got very active programs looking at control processes, decision processes, uh, the focusing and switching and control of attention Uh, the basis of memory and the uh, molecular and cellular mechanisms that underpin that. Uh, I think another feature of of that area is to say that something which I think we're particularly well set up for and we exploit well is the unification of human research on normal, uh, typically the typical human beings, of neuropsychology in relation to people with uh, brain disorders, primate models and rodent models. It's fairly unusual, I think, to have people working in more than one of those areas and some, 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 of, the, some of the people in our department have actually got a foot in, in not that's two but three or, three or four of them. And I think that really maintains the focus on what can these different approaches tell us about the way the, the human mind and the human brain work. Uh, something that's rather newer than that uh, is to it's a, a take this approach of unifying our understanding of the brain, our understanding of, uh, of, of uh, mental processing and, uh, and behavior, uh, but to do it uh, in the context of human development. Developmental cognitive neuroscience has become a, a buzzword, uh, and it's, some, it's something which we've developed strongly over the last 10 years, I think. So we've now got... Uh, I'm, when Jan and I came here, we brought it in the context of... of, 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 of developmental vision research. Uh, Dorothy Bishop was already here working on it in the context of, of language disorders. Uh, Gaia Sharif uh, has, has, has come and is also interested in developmental disorders uh, but from a, with a strongly um, brain-based perspective. And we've also got a, a strong intersection of the understanding of development uh, with the um, processing of language. So. Uh, Kim Plunkett has been working for quite a long time, both on, from the theoretical modeling and um, experimental study of babies' understanding of, of, of spoken language. Uh, Dorothy Bishop, I've mentioned, is having a, a major program on, uh, on disorders of language development. Uh, Kate Watkins, uh, I've already mentioned, and we've got um, Kate Nation also, working, at, work, working on development of reading. So there's a real, there's a real, there's a real nucleus here Unifying the understanding of development, the understanding of the brain, the understanding of language, Uh, and throughout the throughout the recent history of the department, um, empirical social psychology has been an an important ingredient. Uh, I think it's very good that that area sits close to individual cognition and um, and development and um, uh, uh, and psychological disorders. There's many potential. Cross, 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 cross-cutting themes there that uh, don't work if social psychology, as it were, is seen as something very much sitting on its own uh, and of course we've got uh, two staff members working there including Miles Houston's major program on uh, how, what, how people behave as members of groups how they affiliate to groups, how they regard other groups which is applied in areas like Northern Ireland and uh, many other trouble spots around the world. So those are the emphasis. That's what's going on at the moment. Um, What's going to happen in the next few years? Well, there are one or two things I'd like to highlight. Uh, One is that um, we're going to have some significant changes in in the way our teaching program is organized because PPP is actually no more. Uh, Now, uh, By the way, quite a lot of what I'm saying uh, was in the article I the Oxford Magazine kindly published to accompany this, um, this event. And Tim Horder, who's the editor, wrote to me and said, oh, maybe you can tell us why PPP's been abolished, making it sound like it was some very retrograde move. Uh, well, several answers to that. First of all, PPP is dead, long live PP, which is psychology and philosophy. That linkage will continue, and in fact it's going to be developed in a way I'll mention it in a moment. But actually, what was PPP is also being reborn as part of a, a new honor school uh, in biomedical sciences, which I think is a, a significant revival of the old structure of physiological sciences, which was ha- having a number of, uh, a number of re- for a number of reasons, wasn't, I think, uh, giving a, an education that uh, was in, in line with the strength of biological sciences in, in, in South Parks Road. Um, so this new course, which is going to take its first students um, in, the, in the autumn, uh, will have a psychology as a major partner in it. Uh, first, that all the students taking it, just whatever their ultimate emphasis in their cellular systems or, or brain sciences, uh, are going to have some psychology, some behavior in their first year course. So, there's going to be a theme of behavior, a theme of the brain, a theme of the... Like a, the uh, the theme of cells, theme of the body. I, I, I can't re- re- run off all the, all the names of all the f- five themes, I think. But anyway, psychology is in there, which means that prospective, uh, <coughs> prospective cellular scientists, prospective molecular biologists will come out of their first year knowing that actually things happen at a, a level above that in the, in the head. Um, secondly, the, in the second and third years, there'll be the option of... Uh, of taking particular streams, and in fact the, the stream of, that is most explicitly organized is a neuroscience stream, which is very close to a, uh, a reconstruction of the psychology-physiology combination, where psychology will have a, a, a close to a 50-50 partnership in, in training this group of, of, of biological scientists. So I think um, PPP is not dead. PPP is, uh, is, is, is alive and well into slightly different guises one of which I think is going to be a very exciting development in which I hope the psychology department will sustain its sense of ownership towards. Um, I should mention, I'm not sure I should, should, should be mentioning this, but something, something I heard at a meeting actually yesterday is that there is um, a risk, I don't say a risk, there's a possibility that the government will substantially cut the number of places for medical students in this and other universities. And, and Oxford's tentative plan, if that happens... Is not to cut student numbers, but to replace medical students with biomedical sciences students. So, uh, the, the relatively modest operation that's uh, that's occurring at, at the moment, which roughly reproduces the numbers we're taking physio- physiological sciences or PPP, uh, may be substantially enhanced. You may find we've got an awful lot of, of smart young, biologically oriented people uh, learning that psychology is, is part of the picture. They should be uh, they should be adopting. Um, The other other thing I would just like to mention with respect to PPP is that um, plans are well underway for a new combination, PPL, which is psychology, philosophy, and linguistics. Uh, There's already a a very active research relationship between people interested in language in our department and the the Department of Phonetics and Linguistics, uh, and this will actually create an explicit educational pairing of which is rather close to what in the past has been called cognitive science, and we're looking forward to that. We don't, we don't imagine it will attract huge numbers of students, but we do imagine the ones who want to come to do it will be ones who are, are really oriented to and can benefit from sort of looking at um, cognitive processing, both from a, from a formal route in linguistics and from an experimental route in, in, in psychology. Uh, the, the other thing I should mention in the, coming in the immediate future is that... Um, I'm about to be replaced uh, in two respects. Uh, I've been the, the holder of the chair of psychology and I've been the head of department of experimental psychology. Now, my uh, successor in the chair of psychology is already known. Uh, it's David Clark, who's sitting here in the room. and very pleased to welcome him here. Um, and his, um, his, his partner in life and science, Anka Ehlers, who's a welcome principal fellow and will be bringing that to Oxford. And so together we're going to have a major new uh, research enterprise uh, on which will put bring psychological disorders much more centre stage within the department, an area where uh, their work on cognitive behaviour therapy has had a, a really significant practical and national impact. So that's that's very welcome to us. It will change the flavour to some degree. I hope and believe it will change the flavour in a in an exciting direction, uh, and the things here which we don't yet know about in terms of future relationships with the uh, prof- training professional psychologists in Oxford and with the psychiatry department, but I'm sure that will be a, an area we'll hear a lot about in the next few years. Um, David had quite enough to do without taking on the headship of the department, um, and so the, the, head, the future headship of the department is going to be associated with the, uh, with the new Watts professor, uh, Nick Rollins having had to leave that position to be elevated on into clouds of glory and cherubs all around to to um, <coughs> to Wellington Square. Um, I can't. The cherubs are grateful to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I can't. Uh, I, I, I can't yet tell you uh, who the new Watts Professor is going to be. Though I I hope that hope and believe that person has been identified and they will be able to take over the headship of the department uh, in, in a few months' time. So uh, that, may, that may again introduce new directions, new work, new plus, new excitement into the, into the department, and I think we can look forward to a, a future that's both in, that's interesting but not necessarily in the bad sense. Thank you.